These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. All right, folks, it's story time with Dr. Michael, Dr. Michael Siegel. He's a certified scientist, couple times over. He's a good friend of ours, and he is the most appearances of any guest on Heard Tell because he's right, real smart, and he's going to answer questions for us. Because we're actually going to talk science today, buddy, for a change. Hey, How, what a concept! Talk science with the scientists. Uh, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, and we have to believe all scientists, so we have to believe him. Uh, let's start with an easy one here. Since it's in your background, I was going to ask you about it anyway. James Webb Telescope, I know it's one of your absolute favorite things in the entire universe, literally in this case. Uh, there's some talk. They found themselves some ice out in deep space. Is that what we're hearing right here? Yeah, so um, for those of you who are on the YouTube, you can see the image behind me. Others of you can Google it. Um, they came up with a really beautiful image of a star forming region. Um, so what you see behind me is the, the orange light is existing stars shining through and the blue light is where uh, you have new stars being formed, proto stars. And what they're doing is using the background stars to see what's in that cloud. And we're finding ices of carbon dioxide and other elements and so forth, stuff that we New was there, but uh, is nice to confirm in these uh, forming stars. This is one of JBWST's primary missions is to pierce the veil of dust and look into how stars are forming. Because when they form, they're shrouded in these cocoons of dust, which keep optical light from leaking out. So we can't, it's very hard to see what's in there. And so JWST is, is looking through those almost like x-ray vision and going to show us a lot of the details on how stars form. Yeah, I find this interesting because people talk about, you know, there's some themes in space, you know, space, people that cover space for journalism, they have narratives just like political journalists or lifestyle journalists. One of the narratives, especially the last 15, 20 years, is this continuous look for, you know, building blocks of light, water molecules, things like this. For somebody at our level that doesn't understand what a big deal that is, 
This isn't finding the alien civilization is going to show up with a spacecraft. This is just building blocks, bacteria, things like this that we're looking for in the universe. It sounds like small stuff, but scientifically, these would be ginormous leaps in our understanding, right? Yeah, and if you want to understand the basic building blocks of life, you have to understand the basic building blocks of stars and the star systems, that the planetary systems that form around them. So the more we learn about those early stages, the more we learn about stars, and that does ultimately feed into uh, what we can expect for planets in our, in our universe. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. All right, something else space-related has been going on. I find this really interesting, though. They're talking now with the James Webb stuff. I don't know if this is a fair way to put it, but because you've talked about it on this program many times, is this thing exceeding expectations? Because I know you said, you know, this is going to be the next two or three generations worth of data everybody's going to do. The stuff we're reading now, and I'm a neophyte on this, so you explain to me, folks seem like this is even exceeding people's expectations, even at this early stage of the data. I would say the, the, uh, it is exceeded specs. Definitely. Um, what we do is when we design a mission, uh, we set the expectations, you know, I've been involved in this in smaller missions where you put together, a, they send out a call for proposals and they say, we have maybe two launch windows. I mean, JWST is a huge mission. So that was a different thing. But when you're talking about smaller missions, they have say we have two launch windows and you put together a profile of a mission. This is what we're going to build. This is what we're going to accomplish. This is the questions we're trying to answer. And they will get maybe 30, 40 of those proposals. Then they'll trim them down to maybe five or six that get a little bit of money to do further investigation to show that the technology is feasible and they're going to be able to answer these questions. And then they down select to two. So JDST works on it, worked on a different cycle because it was a huge mission, you know, a flagship mission, but it still has the same kind of process where you start out, this is what we're, these are the questions we're hoping to answer. These are the specs the mission is going to meet. These are the kind of data we're going to get. And that, and that's sort of your minimum profile. But it is not unusual for us to exceed those profiles because we want to be conservative. We don't want to put the thing up there and say, well, it's not meeting expectations. So we usually try to set fairly realistic expectations and hope that we exceed them. And in the case of JDOST, it seems to be exceeding those expectations. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, this is going to be a science-heavy segment because usually we end up talking about culture and politics. This will dip into that just a little bit, but it's something we've talked about a lot. Um, when you were on the program, you were kind of one of our go-to guys during COVID and that sort of thing. We talked about this a lot. There was a definitive, whatever you thought of everything else, there was definitively a communication problem between the scientific community and the general public. I think there's just no arguing that there's a communication problem there. They don't communicate well. So interesting thing out of UK, I'm going to link to this, talks about the pitfalls of it. And this seems like just common sense, but scientists, they got to go study and come back and then present common sense as something new to find out, right? People that have more belief in science actually tend to be a little bit more humble about what they don't know. People who don't believe in science tend to be a little more standoffish and know-it-all-ish. How do we start working on the communication barrier between the general public and scientists, whether it's academic or government or whatever, obviously they don't speak the same language. Obviously, there's a knowledge gap because you have somebody that's been in a field 20, 30 years and just somebody that's Googling it. They're, they've got you know just a barrier there. But as we found out during COVID and we found out during other crises, 
those two groups of people have to communicate to each other. And when they don't, bad stuff happens, including during a virus, people die. What do we start doing to make this a little bit better? I think it's more of a cultural change that you're looking for, that people value certainty. You know, if you present what you're saying with certainty, even if you're wrong, people tend to trust you. You know, this is a problem. Uh, one of the things I, I kind of read about a lot is forensic science. And there's been a crisis in forensic science where many of the techniques that people were using to convict people are now turning out not to be very reliable. But when those scientists go to a jury and say, I absolutely know that this is the pliers that cut that wire, that sounds better than someone who said, within a reasonable degree of certainty, it's consistent with this and so forth. So I think it's a cultural change of realizing that uncertainty and caveats are not the language of ignorance or weakness. They are the language of investigation. They are the language of figuring things out. That we have to have a better way of expressing that this is what we know to the best of our knowledge. And that is always subject to change. I mean, there are some things that we're really certain of. There are other things that we're mostly certain of, and there are some things that are still in question. I think uh, with the COVID example, we uh, early on, we thought that this spread through what, what are called fomites, little you know things that contaminated surfaces and so forth, and that you could catch it from that. We told everyone to wash their hands and so forth. And it was reasonable advice based on what we knew at the time, but now we don't think that's a way that COVID spreads very well. It's mostly airborne. And so the, I think that having that communicating to the public that this is what we think we know now based on this evidence. And if that uh, is updated, if our knowledge changes, we will let you know and uh, you know why our, our information is changing, that we have that honesty and communication of bringing people, you're, you're almost like bringing people into the process of science, of saying, you know, here, this is, this is what it's like. This is this this is the uncertainties. This is what we know. This is what we're figuring out, and and having them understand that this is a process, not a series of answers. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Michael Siegel joining us. We're talking science with him as we often do. Okay, this one's kind of related. This comes out of USC, an institution of some note for various reasons. They're talking about, and we'll link to this piece as well. They're talking about science is political because people are political. Now that sounds like another common sense statement, but there is this thing. We find this in academics. We find this in education. We find this in religion, other things. You can't just slap something like science on something and automatically make it this magical thing that's completely unbiased. 
do we lose focus sometimes? I think we did this during COVID a lot of all oh, the science, the science. Well, no, science is people. Those are people doing it. Is that one of those perspectives we need to keep when we're dealing with things like science and scientists, especially when it comes to things like new studies or new drugs or new discoveries? These are people and the people factor has to be factored in here somewhere, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. It, and one of the things I like to say is that when you cross science with politics, the result is not to scientize the politics, it's to politicize the science. And it's very difficult to keep that out. I and mean, I try to, when I've talked about COVID and so forth, state my biases up front. But one of the things, and you know, Dr. Fauci talked about this, was science often informs debates, but many of these debates over science extend beyond that into things like morality and balancing things like when you're talking about the COVID response, balancing the economy and education and trying to keep people from dying and so forth. Uh, so I think you, there's a tendency to think that one perspective, because it has a favorite uh, uh, alliance with certain science is better than other any other, but you, you have to remember that there are always other factors that are at play. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Look, we could spend, people spend a lifetime studying this kind of stuff. Where does science stop? Where does morality stop? Where does scientific belief and religious belief or metaphysics or whatever you want to call it, people spend whole lifetimes trying to figure that stuff out. What, what's just kind of like a, a guide rule when you start getting it? Something's like, okay, well, here's the science and then here's where the morality starts. For just a lay person, that line's always going to be gray and it's going to have a spectrum to it. But what's just kind of a guideline you've always tried to adhere to? Or when you're teaching like first year students or somebody like that, that's just introducing into these sciences like, hey, yeah, morality and science are not the same thing, but here's where they start to overlap and just realize this is where the overlapping is starting to happen. There's a quote I use, I think I've used it on your show as well, from uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies where he says, uh, archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're interested in, the philosophy class is just down the hall. You know, you, you have to focus on where are you talking about facts and where are you talking about judgment? Uh, I, you know, we've talked about this in politics before that you say you take one of the most contentious debates in our society, abortion. Science can tell you where certain milestones are reached for fetal development. Science can tell you what the risk profile is for pregnant women and so forth. But ultimately, you're talking about a moral judgment of when does the fetus have a right to live? When does the woman have a right to control her body? That is a moral judgment. So the further you get away from fact, the more you're getting into other things like philosophy and religion and politics, and the further you are from getting into science. And there are some debates where science doesn't have answers. I mean, the, the abortion debate, like I said, is a perfect example where you're talking about moral questions and you can't have science say this is what more, more moral than the other thing. I People say science is amoral. I don't quite think that's the case, but it has a moral limitations. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay, here's a popular one. A couple of people were asking about this one, so we'll ask you about it. Uh, this is almost a, almost a pet peeve of mine, but the studies say, so we see all these news stories of the studies say, and they never link to the story and they never link to the study. And then we can't read the studies. 
look, studies are like a lot of things. There's good ones. There's bad ones. There's paid for ones. There's people honestly trying to overcome truth. Give folks from the science perspective as a certified scientist, how to weed through when it's just the studies say, because that that's become kind of a, a crutch for news reports. They just say the study says, but that doesn't really tell us anything about the study, let alone anything else, does it? No, the, for when you're online, I will ignore any resource that doesn't link to the actual study because nine times out of 10, when I find the study, they've, they're misquoting it or misrepresenting it. Um, things to watch out for are, did they talk to the scientists who actually did the study to confirm that? Um, I've had experience with science journalists, I mean, not on anything contentious, but on, uh, on things like astronomy and the good ones call you, they confirm it, they send you the story to say, you know, is this right? What I said here and so forth. If they're quoting the scientists, that's usually a good sign. Another sign, and this is more in the political arena than the journalistic arena. If someone says all the studies say, you can bet your bottom dollar that all the studies do not say that. Maybe most of the studies say, maybe the consensus of the studies say that, but you always get outlier studies. You know, if you flip a coin 20 times, Odds are you'll get 10 heads and 10 tails, but that's not going to happen every time. Maybe you get 15 heads just because of the luck. Same thing is true of studies. When you study things, sometimes you get bad results. And it's not because you did anything wrong. It's not because you're fraudulent. It's just because you got a bad set of data. It just happens. And so many of these issues we try to study over and over again. One of the things to look for are what they call meta studies, where they take a whole bunch of studies of an issue and put them together and try to get a consensus sense of what they're looking at. Um, we talked last year about the science on gun control and the RAND Corporation did this meta study where they took hundreds of studies and they narrowed it down to the ones that were the highest quality and said, okay, when we combine these, what do they say? You can always find a study that will support whatever point you want to make. But when you look at the consensus of studies, when you look at multiple studies, that's when the truth comes out. And especially when you're talking about kind of contentious issues, a lot of times it's difficult to get the truth that you're looking at a very small signal in a very large population. And so the more studies you have, the more data you have, the more certain you are of your conclusions. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Part of that is, this is just where you got to have a little bit of a grown folk talk. Again, science isn't like, it's like education, like religion, whatever. Just slapping science on it doesn't make it science, right? Mm -hmm. Research has money involved. Research has big money involved in it. Uh, there's jobs on the line. There's futures on the line. There's careers. There's reputations. Is it not fair to ask where these studies come from? Who's funding them? Who's behind them? Where did they come from? Just like we would, you know, we would try out a product. We would check a political figure. You know, where's his funding come from? Who's backing him? There, there should be some room for some healthy skepticism of science and the scientific process because, and you've said this on this show many, many times, science is a lot of other things. The more transparent it is, the more you're probably getting a better product from that scientist or the scientific study, right? Yep, and most journals now require disclosure of funding sources. Uh, when I publish a paper, um, I'm just saying it was funded by the NSF and NASA, but with health studies and so forth, you do have to disclose that. There was a very big controversy early on in the pandemic where a study claimed that COVID was way less lethal than anyone was saying, and we could open up, everyone had herd immunity and so forth, and the study turned out to be badly flawed, but there was a controversy because they did not disclose 
that they had gotten some funding from the founder of JetBlue, who definitely wanted things to reopen. And that's not necessarily meaning they did bad science. They, you know, maybe that funding didn't affect their results at all. But you have to disclose so people can take that into consideration when they uh, consider what your results are. Michael Siegel. Okay, science sometimes brings out nefarious things. Let's just be fair about that, especially technology things. You are at an institution of higher learning, so this is a good thing for you to ask. The AI-driven stuff, the chat GT, all this sort of thing where AI can, and, and it's still wonky enough that somebody like you and me who actually write semi-professionally, at least, you know, on a, on a higher level of being published, you know, we could still look at that and say that, okay, something's off, this is wonky, but it's getting close. And it's probably going to get closer in the future. You're at an institution of higher learning. I got to think this is a topic of discussion of what we're going to do about this. This has a lot of ramifications. You just said it. Study says you can get a study to say anything. Well, if we can pop out 40 studies a week through AI, now we're going to have a flood problem of bad information. I got to think this is a topic of discussion in the scientific community. You're on that side of the fence. Is it a topic and what are people proposing to do about it? I don't think it's so much of a topic for scientific publications uh, because, you know, you you only have so much data to go around. So popping that out is not going to help you so much. It is a big concern right now in education circles where people are going to be able to get basically AI generated essays and term papers that will be indistinguishable from what was written by a human. And how do you fight that? Um, I've, I've, uh, jokingly suggested we're going to have to go back to oral exams for everything, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, what I, in education, what I usually do is I have, uh, I give my tests at, at a testing center where they have computers that aren't on the internet and they have to secure their phones and so forth. And, uh, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, but ultimately this is a battle that we're going to have to fight in, in higher ed to, basically keep people from letting the computers do their learning for them. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. This is a little bit more of a meta question, but I wanted to ask you about it because we're starting to hear some of this. Again, this is a post, look, COVID changed a lot of things in the scientific community because a lot of people paid attention to science for the first time in a long time, right? That's good, mm -hmm. bad, and different, but that, that sunlight revealed darkness and shadow both, right? science is always going to be academic heavy. It's always going to lean towards government research because that's where the money is. There's, there's just, you know, paths in science, just like any other career field. There does seem to be a discussion and there does seem to be some growing movement that we've really lost some community-based science and that there's more local level, maybe state level, maybe, you know, major city level stuff that could be done scientifically and just like media, just like education, like a lot of things, there's been this nationalization and we're losing some community science. Is that a legitimate concern? Because it makes a lot of sense of like, look, there's just some communities that need some scientific research in those communities. It's more organic. This, again, would probably come through the academic field. But just what are your thoughts on that? That's a, that's a tricky one. Most of the funding has to come from the federal government because you you are often talking about big projects that are hard to fund. But there are a lot of 
little grants and little programs that are run by at, at the state level, at the university level, and at the private level that can help fund students and so forth. And there's been particular emphasis recently on putting money towards uh, women and underrepresented minorities uh, being able to do science with grants and uh, funding for graduate students that it's available specifically uh, to advance those communities. So I, I think that we are moving more towards a, something that's community oriented, but it's always gonna be tricky because when you're talking about like JDBST, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar mission. That's something that can only be funded at the federal level. All right, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. All right, here's another question that somebody had, and I think this is actually a really good one. Um, for the last, I don't know, probably last 15, 10, 15, 20 years or so, STEM's been a big push for uh, secondary education going into college. We need to get more kids in the STEM. We need to get more elementary programs in the STEM. We need to have a STEM pipeline in the universities. We see the numbers out of other countries, especially places like China, which, look, numerically, we're just not going to be able to compete with them. They can pump out a thousand scientists, every one of ours. But there's been this big push for STEM. Has that gotten a little too buzzwordy? And should we maybe retool our branding on how we're trying to get folks into the sciences, however you want to say that? STEM's a good acronym. I'm not knocking it individually, but we just used it for so much. Maybe it's kind of losing its, uh, maybe losing the buzz on it a little bit. Do we need to kind of rebrand? Look, the military changes its recruiting every so often. Schools change their logos. The NFL changes logos six times a season. Does science need a new branding other than just we need more STEM students, do you think? I don't think so. Um, I'd, I'd actually disagree a little bit there because it's it's becoming just – I've watched with my own kids. It's becoming part of their background that they just expect science and, and engineering education to be – part of the warp and weft of education. And I see it in undergrads that they have a science requirement and they're not fighting it or trying to look for easy classes as much as they did when I was in college. And I've taught the Astro 101 class and it's a more intense class than we had when I was a college student. And most of them are not science majors and they do really well in it. Um, there is a, there is a, a huge interest in this sort of thing. And I think it sparks the imagination, even for people who don't go into scientific fields. I think having that exposure to the wider universe, having the exposure, especially if you're emphasizing how science works and the process of science, and these aren't just edicts handed down by guys in white uh, uh, jackets, that these are things that we work on, things that we uh, is a process in my class and I know in other classes they'll emphasize ideas that we thought were right that were wrong and why we figured out they were wrong and how we replace them with better ideas so I think overall this is one of those things that I think is generally good obviously there's always work you can do to improve it and I think especially disadvantaged communities to extend the reach out there so that they have more exposure to this but uh, I think overall making the public even just a little bit more scientifically literate is going to is going to pay off ultimately. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. It's inter- You said something there that I don't want to just skip over because I think it's really important. When you teach that introductory class, Astronomy 101 or whatever it's called, those introductory classes, like you said, not everybody in that class is going to become an astronomer, but it'll pique an interest. I know like when, when I took English 101 the first time, I didn't realize how good my high school English teacher had been until I took that class and I turned in my first essay and the guy's like, who was your English teacher? I'm like, Mrs. Nash. And she's, he's like, oh, you don't need to take this class. You've already had it. You know? <laughs> There's a realization when you take those entry level classes. This is more for your educator hat than your scientist hat. Those 101 classes, those introductory, you know, introductory English, introductory humanities, usually an introductory science, either an astronomy or a natural science or whatever, psychology 101. There's an inherent educational and scientific value to taking a general education course like that because it does open you up to other things. That, that plays into something, you know, I've told my own children, I tell people, I was like, nobody cares where you take English 101 at, go to community college, nobody cares, right? That's something that I think we don't tell people coming up out of high school enough is like, yes, take those courses because it may not be a career thing, but it'll definitely be a perception changing thing. And you've seen that firsthand because you teach that class. Yep. And I think that's one of the things where America is better than a lot of the rest of the world, because in many countries they focus their undergraduate education much more narrowly on what their specialty is. You know, I have stu- I have people come to here from other countries and they're like, why are your science students taking English classes and taking the anthropology classes and so forth? And then, oh, they write a lot better than students who haven't taken those classes. It, you know, it broadens the perspective. It teaches you skills that are applicable in many areas. You know, you're not, if you're taking an intro science class or an intro chemistry class and you're going to be a lawyer, you're not going to learn anything that you're going to use in a courtroom probably, but you are learning to broaden your perspective, to get a, a little bit of insight. And if you end up with you, where you have a scientific question in law, you have more of that feeling of how to go about asking the right questions, how to sort, uh, filter the right answers and so forth. I'm a very big believer in a broad education and that people should do the humanities, they should do the social sciences, they should do science, 
because I think that these cross pollinate into making you better at whatever you choose to do. Having that education from other fields, I think broadens your mind, gives you that perspective, gives you those skills that can be applied. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel talking a little science. All right, time for a fun question here. Um, <laughs> I don't. I I almost am embarrassed to even ask you this, but I'm going to anyway because it's fun. Uh, I got to ask you about this. So this was online. I'm going to ask you about this. British. Now it's our British friends. We. I'm not going to make a British food joke here because I think British food's actually pretty good. And I will link to the picture. Plant-based mashed potatoes. Now, scientifically, when we're labeling things plant-based mashed potatoes, I feel like maybe we've crossed from science into marketing just a smidge <laughs> bit. But you, doctor, scientist, tell me what you think. That sounds like marketing to me, like someone saw plant-based meat and was uh, wanted to reassure people that potatoes are not meat or something like that. Um, I agree with you on British food, by the way. I Half of my mission is in the UK, so I've been there a few times. And if you, uh, I, and I could eat fish and chips all day and uh, they're wonderful curry shops. And if you go to like a small pub in the middle of nowhere in England, you're probably going to have a really good meal. I tell people all the time, I was like, it, it gets unfairly bashed because they're always comparing it to like French food and hot cuisine or whatever. That That's hot, not hot for those of you from <laughs> Logan. Um, if you think of it as comfort food going in, it, it hits much closer. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. it's I I've always, I've ate very very well when I've been in the UK. I have no complaints whatsoever. Uh, Michael Siegel, uh, who's married to an Aussie who likes Outback, but that's another story for another day. Uh, well, Australia Day coming up, where we'll have to go there. We always go to that, Australia. Is that? I would think that would be an offensive thing, but you're actually just embracing it. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, my my wife just likes the food there. So uh, and. The, the sort of Aussie kitsch she kind of finds more amusing than offensive. Um, I've, I've had the reverse of that. I was in uh, Brisbane and I went to an American restaurant and it was like uh, the waitresses were all in cowboy hats and it was all steak and so forth. And I was like, oh, so this must be what it like, what's like when people come to America and go to our restaurants. But it was it was good is the food was good and it was a good place. So I didn't mind. Yeah, I, uh, I I will cop to going to TGI Fridays just off Trafalgar Square in London, but that's another story for another day. Uh, our good friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, he flies spaceships, he writes, he has a wonderful YouTube channel where he has all kinds of sci-fi science mashup explainers, including one that involved me, but that almost killed his ratings. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you, and where they can find you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Uh, if you go to www.ordinary-times.com, that's where I I, I do uh, all, all my writing. I post my YouTube videos there. There'll be links to my Twitter and uh, uh, one-stop shopping. And if you even if you don't see me, you'll almost certainly see a really good writer there. Yeah, we're pretty proud of it. Dr. Michael Siegel, great knowledge, great insight. Always enjoy chatting with you and appreciate you bringing it down to the level where even I can understand it. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure to be on, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. Now let me see you go off like a bomb.
Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's back, Benjamin Ianian. He is a graduate of the University of Minnesota, but we are not going to hold that against him for the purposes of this conversation. Widely published writer, uh, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Yahoo News, all over the place. He's been here before. Ben, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Great. I want to re-up something that we actually talked about back uh, back the end of last year. You had written a piece in the fall, I think it was October, November, in Spectator about, um, and it's one of the great titles, by the way, The Urge to Legislate Lives Loudly Within Politicians. I'm just going to nutshell the piece. We're going to link to the whole thing. But you were basically talking about things like legislating by emergency, legislating by deadlines, you know, uh, never letting a crisis go to waste, this kind of thing. And then how that juxtaposes, <laughs> how that juxtapositions against the mundane stuff that really matters, but kind of flies under the radar. And nobody pays attention to. The reason I want to re-up it is not just because we have a new Congress in session, but most of the state legislatures or assemblies or House of Delegates or whatever different states have, most of those are in session now. The same principles that we talk about with Congress and the Senate should be applied to these legislative branches and state senates, but we're not paying attention to that with our nationalized media, are we? No, and I mean, national media definitely focuses on um, our federal legislative branches more. And if you want to know what your state legislature is doing, you probably have to read local news unless um, what those state legislative bodies are doing um, affects their party's narrative as a whole. You know, when states were changing their voting rules, that was national media. Um, things of that nature will make its way into national news. But you're you're completely right. The national news media really does not give as much attention to our state legis legislative bodies. Benjamin Ianian joining us. Here's the thing. When you get to a state legislature, they're all different. This is where national media and the death of local media, or at least the diminished of it, really hurts because it's hard to tell how they do things. You know, are they railroading stuff? Are they ignoring stuff? Are they legislating by an emergency? How do they handle an emergency like a natural disaster or how they handled COVID or things like that? These are the nuances on how we should be judging whether a legislative body is functioning correctly or not. And when we get tied up in the things you're just talking about, we aren't doing that. No, I, I've, I completely agree with you. I don't think many of you know my friends, I'm from uh, Virginia. I'm down here in Florida right now, but most of the people I know back home couldn't you know, tell you the first thing about their state legislature. They don't know, you know exactly how they've handled certain crises. There's certain things that they could talk about. You know, We all looked around and saw what restrictions were in place during you know the COVID uh, nineteen you know scare, especially you know, at the height of the pandemic, we could see you know how how things were really being handled right outside of our front door. But besides that, um, people at least where I'm from um, don't necessarily pay much attention to the local news or to their local legislatures, and I think it's a real problem because a lot of people assume that you know the federal government is what decides everything in our lives and. To be fair, as the federal government usurps greater and greater power um, over the country as a whole, it is somewhat true that you know what they do matters most. Um, but it, it's still really important to know what your you know local lawmaking body is up to. 
Yeah, Benjamin Ianian joining us. You used the example of um, the Roe v. Wade being overturned. Taking out the actual argument over abortion, because that's those are ruts that are well grooved in now. This was a real teaching moment, though, I think, because it was baffling to some. I kind of expected it to happen this way. Folks really didn't understand a lot of the process here. They didn't understand, I guess, because we just buzzworded it so long that the Supreme Court's going to rule and then all these state legislatures are going to have to deal with this issue. And a lot of them had already previously done it and some already had it on the books. But the process there revealed exactly what we're talking about. We have this hot button national issue that went for 40 years, one of the most contentious issues we have in politics. And it's like people completely forgot that their state and local legislatures were going to have a big hand in it once that happened. Yeah, and there was a huge, you know, cry that you know certain states moved um, to have you know certain rules um, regarding abortion, and then um, then there were calls to override all of that at the federal level level and try and codify Roe v. Wade with a a law, um, which um, Congress does not have the authority to do. Um, and so people completely forgot and seemed, you know, they were incredulous that state legislatures, that localities were going to be the ones that played a big hand in, you know, quote unquote, United States abortion policy. But, you know, it'll be state by state. Um, a lot of people didn't understand that and weren't expecting it. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think people didn't quite um understand that because for decades um we had a, a court decision that you know said that you know abortion um is a woman's right at the time and people have a right to privacy um and so i don't think people expected that to necessarily be changed there were i guess you know you could argue half the aisle maybe expected it to be exchanged at changed at one point and the other half never expected it to change um but there wasn't a lot of forward thinking about okay what would happen um in the event that a new court would review really the merits of that case and overturn it and what would that mean and so it seemed like a lot of people were caught off guard um that once roe v wade was overturned that the states were going to be the main um rule making um modalities for abortion policy and that the federal government was really their hands were tied. There were calls again to codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, it's pretty clear the constitution does not give Congress the authority to do so. Um, and I do wanna point out on that earlier, you talked about you know not letting a crisis go to waste is uh is you know a big theme in all of this and joe biden made the case that you know the filibuster there should be an exception to the filibuster if there were attempts to codify roe v wade so not only were our political leaders in response to um, a contentious issue wanting the legislative body to do something they didn't have the authority to do they also wanted to stampede over a very necessary rule in my opinion now the the filibuster can certainly get annoying when people get up and talk for you know god knows how long um and just kill a bill that way but it is an important check on you know momentary impassioned federal majorities um and so i i, I think um these things really need to be thought through better when there is a contentious issue out there
Benjamin Ianian joining us. Here's another thing, and I kind of touched on it, but I don't want to gloss over it. I haven't seen, whether it's the House of Representatives or the Senate at the national level or House of Delegates or Assemblies or whatever your state has or state senates, I haven't seen a real good sitting down and reviewing of what these bodies did during COVID and what they should do to prepare for the next crisis. I haven't seen it. I've heard some words. I've seen people talk about it. But as I've kind of watched these legislative sessions open up, I see a lot of the same issues and not that those don't need addressed, but I haven't seen any real soul searching in these legislative bodies about how they handled that crisis and what they should do differently. I think this is a glaring problem that we do not seem to have legislative bodies that do, you know, self-correction very well and the apathy of the people to make them do that. This is a problem. Yeah. And well, and think, you know, politicians, what, what do we see today from them um, in the media? What would, what do we see from them on Twitter? We see them constantly tooting their own horn, talking about how great they are and how you know they have done a great job with the power that they have, and actually sitting down and having a reflection on the actions that they've taken. I mean, that requires humility. That's going to require um, admitting to you know missteps, to poor decisions, to things that didn't turn out correctly. Um, but that's not the nature of the beast right now in politics. What we have is, um, it seems, you know, an electorate, an electorate that is very divided. Um, and so when they're very divided, they tend to really back the team that seems to be speaking to them, either the Democrats or the Republicans. And so to continue to keep their support and fuel um, their hatred towards the other side, politicians are going to constantly be trying to make it look as if they've made all the right decisions. They couldn't have done anything different. Um, and so there's really not a whole lot of incentive when the when the electorate, you know, doesn't want to believe that, you know, a politician from their party could have made grave mistakes um, and missteps during, you know, the pandemic to um, there's not a lot of incentive for those politicians to say, you know what, guys, let's take a look at what we did. You know, did we, you know, respond to this crisis the right way? And if not, what do we need to change next time? There's just, there's not a lot of appetite. I think you use the word apathy uh, really well um, from, you know, voters. There's not um, a lot of push for them to do this. And so politicians are continuing to feed people, you know, what they want to hear. They, they want to hear that the guy they voted for, the team that they're on, the jersey that they wear, um, they got it right and that they have nothing to regret. Yeah, Benjamin Ianian. So how do we change the conversation on that? We're not going to change human nature. That's undefeated. We understand that politics is uh, much like flowing water. It's always going to take the path of least resistance to get where it's going. There's a lot of gravity involved in politics. That's not going to change. We can change how we talk about it. We can change how we cover it. And we can change how we discuss it on things like social media. How do we start that? Is it a terminology thing? Is it a nomenclature thing? Is it, I don't think just pointing out hypocrisy really changes hypocrisy one little bit. That's just a life lesson. And I think history backs me up on that. So how do we talk about this in a little bit better way? I think that terminology, I mean, is a big part. We need to put things in terms that, you know, people can, you know, really, you know, grasp and that lights a fire under them. You know, Friedrich Hayek point, you know, said that you need and this is not a direct quote, but um, he you know, wrote this idea that you need to 
put old truths in modern terms for them to carry on. Um, and so there may be issues, you know, 50 years ago um, that people that the citizenry would have been plugged into, you know, hypocrisy um, and, um, you know, deception, fraud, corruption. Um, there may have been a time where people were more in tune to what their local governing bodies were doing. Um, but today we don't seem to be, we seem to be, you know, distracted by the national news. You know, there's always a massive story that's supposed to be the end all be all of whether or not our country survives the day. Um, and people are really caught up in all of that stuff. And it's really hard to, to, to keep up with your local legislature. And then you hear the word, you know, corruption, um, a lot you hear, you know, we call politicians hypocrites. At the end of the day, those words, they swirl around every single day. Um, and at a certain point, they start to lose their punch. Um, and so when you hear corruption, a lot of times people are going to go, oh, yeah, I mean, it's politics. There's going to be corruption. It's like there needs to be it needs to be put in a different way to people to make them care. I think the best way to do it is in a more straightforward way we need people to understand like how it truly affects them individually um, because at the end of the day we are you know self-interested beings we have the capability to you know act altruistically um but it's never possible for us to care about you know um the swaths of people more than we necessarily care about ourselves um when in terms of some of these issues and so um it's like adam smith's um quote you know you don't expect your dinner out of the benevolence of the butcher um, but instead out of the regard to his own self-interest that butcher might care about you but he brings you your dinner because you paid him for it and so we need to tell show people how these things actually affect them directly and if we can do that, I think it will take um, some different terminology instead of just throwing buzzwords around. Um, I think then people would start to care more. Yeah, I think so, too. But unfortunately, usually it takes something bad to happen to get folks to care about government. We'll try to do a little better on that. Benjamin Ianian, good friend of ours. Good to see you again, buddy. Let folks know what you got going on and where they can keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, as you can follow me on Twitter. Um, at Benjamin Ianian or on Instagram at Bianian13. Uh, that's where I post all my links to articles and great conversations with people like Andrew. Um, and so go follow me there and uh, you can keep up with my writings through that. All right. You're already in the rotation. You don't have to suck up about it, buddy. <laughs> but I do appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Benjamin Ianian, another one of our great Young Voices contributor. Keep up with all him with the links. We'll talk to you again soon, my friend. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. 
And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.